you know, even most Christians, they want the form and fashion and likeness of Jesus because he's cool Mm -hmm. and he's fun and he's exciting and he's popular, at least in terms of their church going circles. But they don't actually want to live like Jesus and imitate Jesus's true message because they can't even understand what does it mean? God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Has that ever even been preached in any church? It's barely ever preached in its fullness of what it obviously means. As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle. Light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's Firestarter is David Gnorski. David is a writer, speaker, radio host, film director, who is dedicated to introducing Jesus' personhood revolution to the church and the broader public. A Neighbor's Choice is the name of his radio show that interviews contrarians and misfits from people locked away for life for nonviolent choices to pioneer nutrition scientists and nuclear energy entrepreneurs. What binds the show's narrative together is the way Jesus' personhood principles unlock our blindness to toxic groupthink and zero-sum coercion, or politics, then opens the door to win-win solutions and secrets left to be discovered in nature. David also does a weekly dive podcast called Things Hidden, as well as a YouTube channel at David Gernoski, where he interviews people like Jordan Peterson, theologian David Bentley Hart, Ron Paul, Peter Schiff, James Dell Davidson, blues legend Daryl Davis, and many more diverse voices, heroes, and innovators in science and technology. Well, welcome back, David. Oh, so glad to be back. It's great to hear from you. <laughs> yes, it's going to be fun, a conversation again. We did a whole series of different conversations, and so I'm going to hope to sum up a lot of our conversation so that there's background for today's conversation. Uh, So, you know, as I go through this, just let me know if anything's missing. So last time you were here, we spent a great deal of time talking about Rene Girard's work and the mimetic theory as well as scapegoating. And so a quick synopsis is that through his literary study, Rene Girard began seeing common threads in humanity through myths and legends and other writings that man likes to mimic each other to the point that it causes conflict and almost an endless violence. To avoid entire destruction, you know, man came up with scapegoating where they could cast all the blame onto somebody in society that's different among them, and then they sacrifice that person to help create peace. But this violent sacrifice is then replicated throughout civilization to resolve conflict and destruction and societal famine, those kinds of things where they just continue to do this violent sacrifice. And then, however, Gerard discovered that the Bible helped to deconstruct a lot of that mimetic theory and scapegoating 
so man can see a different way to resolve conflict and provide lasting peace. And then Jesus's ultimate sacrifice on the cross is that ultimate end to scapegoating. It helps us to see that lie behind using this method to answer our problems. Is that like a good sum up of kind yeah, of? It's really good. It's pretty good. You know, it's <laughs> a, a grand sweeping uh, explanation of history and uh, understanding current events. And that's a pretty good starting point to go with. So. Yeah, there's a lot of great work on Gerard. Uh, is that correct? Like, where would you recommend people going? It's just if they want to go and kind of see more about his work. Well, you've got uh, Gil Bailey with the Cornerstone Forum. He was a contemporary of Gerard, and he's a good one to read from. And then you've got uh, the uh, works of Gerard himself. I see Satan fall like lightning. Mm -hmm. It's the one I recommend a lot. It's about 200 pages. And it's just a good like explanation for what you just described and, and explaining how it impacts our society today. And uh, I would also recommend David Cayley's, uh He's a broadcaster from the uh, Canadian Broadcasting uh, Radio Network, CBC. They have a five-part series of uh, Rene Girard. It's an hour each part, so it's a five-hour series of Rene Girard going in-depth explaining his theory on every point so you get the foundations of how humans desire things which is mimetic which just means imitation and uh, we imitate not just what people do but we imitate the desires of, of those around us what we perceive them wanting we want to want to just like a toddler wants the same toy exactly that the other to the other toddlers playing with not because the toy is inherently better than than any other toy in the pile of toys and not because there's something unique in that toddler's heart that really, really wants that toy, but rather he just simply catches the desire that the other toddler has in wanting that toy. And so he wants it too. That's what mimetic desires means. And we do that all the time in adult life and all through history. And it can be very good when we're doing, when we're imitating positive things and nonviolent things and creative things and win-win uh, solutions, but it becomes very, very bad when we are desiring things which lead to envy and jealousy and aggression and uh, eventually violent conflict. And so that's, I would recommend the CBC radio series interview, which you can find on YouTube if you type in Rene Girard CBC They've got it on YouTube, or you can listen to the series on David Cayley's website, which is just really good. It's a very good foundation. Yeah. But it's yeah. something everybody needs to, if you want to have any chance at understanding the headlines in any intelligible way, you have to engage with Rene Girard. There's, yeah. no, there's no excuse. We kind of talked about that last time that, you know, it's the the anthropology of natural man to kind of follow these patterns. And that's why the Bible is so it's such a disruptive book in a way, because it helps us to basically um, understand what that mimetic desire and scapegoating looks like and then also how to put an end to you know so that we're maybe trying to mimic somebody better such as christ which i feel like that's what your website really touches on with the loving justice side of it that 
I'm hoping yeah. that we'll talk about today. You know, at the end of our conversation, we did touch on how we can use that information today to help us avoid that natural man tendency in our lives. So I really felt bad after we got done talking. I felt really sad that I hadn't talked to you more about your work in Neighbor's Choice and how you're helping to deconstruct that continued desire that we have for that mimetic desire and scapegoating. I mean, a lot of us would feel like we are religious, you know, that we understand the Bible and all of that. But I really feel like with your website, you really break it down of how we're kind of missing the mark, you know, how we're not, yeah. we're still having this medic desire through victimless crimes and a lot of aggressive acts towards others, but we may not even recognize it. Um, right. So do you want to maybe give us some background of how you developed the Neighbor's Choice website and then a lot of your writing on there, you know, with the loving justice? Yeah, well, it's, it's called a Neighbor's Choice. So it's, it's kind of like a mystery, you know, what is a Neighbor's Choice? And I put that for a reason because I wanted people to think, well, what what is what is that? What is that? A neighbor's choice? What's a neighbor's choice? You know, so you immediately it creates a question in your mind when you hear the name. That's the name of my radio show and the website, a neighbor's choice, because I wanted people to think about, you know, how much so much of what they choose is based on what their neighbors choose, right? Mm -hmm. So, neighbor's choice is the foundation for almost everything you are. So, in some sense. <laughs> It's also another way of looking at the question that Jesus says, which is God desires mercy or sacrifice. So if you go to our website, neighborschoice.com, the first thing you're confronted with is the question, do you desire mercy or do you desire sacrifice? So I'm asking the same question that Jesus says is the fundamental question behind the fundamental choice behind his entire ministry, that God desires mercy not sacrifice. He says, go and learn. If you understand what this passage means, then you understand everything I'm doing. So, I mean, how obvious is it? it's right in front of us, but yet nobody sees it because they don't want to see it because we want to kill the messenger because, you know, even most Christians, they want the form and fashion and likeness of Jesus because he's cool mm -hmm. and he's fun and he's exciting and he's popular, at least in terms of their church going circles but they don't actually want to live like Jesus and imitate Jesus's true message because they can't even understand what does it mean? God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Has that ever even been preached in any church? It's barely ever preached in its fullness of what it obviously means. Yeah. Mercy needs to withhold that which is due to someone because of, uh, of, you know, like karma or something, you get what you deserve. Right? So mercy is, is, is breaking into that, karma system that tit for tat or the or the reciprocal mimetic desire of conflict which is you strike me i gotta strike you you insult me i gotta insult you mercy comes in there and stops that and then sacrifice tries to stop it in another way by saying okay everybody hates each other well i think it's bob's fault bob is the witch or bob is the heretic or Bob is the white supremacist, or Bob, or you know whatever is the, uh, you know trans, or whoever the scapegoat people want to make to be in their own little community, somebody has to be selected for the ire of sacrifice in order to channel the community's tensions and problems and sense of of belonging onto killing a common enemy, and that's what the sacrifice represents. 
So when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, God desires mercy, not sacrifice, he's giving you two ways of operating in the world that we can choose to live by. And we don't choose the mercy path. Most Christians don't even touch it hardly. And I'm not condemning them worse than the others. I'm just saying it, it's it's a shame because wouldn't you think that if you're going to go to a Jesus fan club every week that you should learn what Jesus actually meant? That's a joke, right? Mm-hmm. That's like going to the Lions Club, you know, and they don't even know what a lion is. You know, I mean, not even, you know, it's like you, you go to something and it's false advertisement. You know, you go to learn fishing and all they do is talk about, uh, you know, checkers or something. It's like, what? We came here to learn how to fish and you don't do anything. You don't even know how to throw the fish line in the, in the, in the pool. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the, in the pond, that's what we're dealing with, with the anemic church that we have today. And I'm not, I'm not a critic, critic of the church really. Even though I say that, <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is I think you should go to church. That's fine. I'm not like one of those guys that says go away from church and all that stuff. But I think we need to all grow up a little bit in the Christian community and start taking these things seriously, you know? Yeah. On your website, on your Take Action page, you actually talk about how it's a mission-based education platform that's right. in coalition with churches and pastors and stuff. But then it's interesting, too, like when you uh, listen to a lot of your radio shows, you interview people that are contrarians. I mean, that's what we say in your bio, contrarians and misfits or people that's been locked away for nonviolent choices. But we have deemed those people as breaking the law, basically. You know, how does that all kind of fit together where, you know, we, we have the, the education of churches, um, but we're also hanging out with all the contrarians, misfits, and people who break the law, basically. That, that's what church is filled with. Church is filled with contrarians, misfits, and people who break the law. That's why they're there. <laughs> Uh, people who kill their spouses and all kinds of terrible, there's all kinds of terrible things that you find in church, but that's what humans are all about. They have a lot of flaws and uh, church is supposed to be a hospital for that, but I think it would help people make their churches a little bit more meaningful if they would actually start teaching that to be a Christian means to imitate Jesus. That's such a simple concept. People don't even like, what, what do you mean? And you often hear people say, you're not Jesus. Don't tell me you're, you know, you're not, you know, the, if you say, hey, aren't we supposed to do this? They'll say, well, you're not Jesus. What does that mean? It means they don't want to actually imitate Jesus. They just want to have another pagan deity that they can put in their pocket, and they'll call him Jesus all day long. But just because you say the word Jesus doesn't mean you're talking about imitating the real Jesus in history. Yeah. You know, there were two Jesuses in the story of Jesus' uh, trial in front of Pilate. There was the Jesus, uh, and this is what the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, of the trial of Jesus, when Pilate presents Jesus before the crowd, and he has Barabbas there, right? Well, Bar Abbas, Bar means of, Abba means the Father. Remember, Jesus kept calling himself, I am sent from the Father, I am the Son of the Father, and all this stuff. So, so Barabbas, the guy who you know is presented as, who do you want to free, the crowd has asked. Who do you want to free, Barabbas or Jesus? Well, the earliest manuscripts of Matthew describe Barabbas' name as Jesus Barabbas. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, and then the real Jesus, his name was Jesus too, and he was the son of the Father. So the text is wanting you to see very clearly that this is a tale of two Jesuses. And so the crowd is a stand-in for the the reader who reads the text, even today, as you pick up the Bible and read it. 
with yourself or your family or your church, you are represented by the crowd in that story, and you have to make the same choice that the crowd has to make the choice of in that story, which is, do you choose the Barabbas, the Jesus who's the one of nonviolent, or the Barabbas Jesus who is the violent revolutionary? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that was, I had never, ever seen that until you pointed it out to me. And I think that that's very clear, you know, when we go back to your website, that homepage of either justice or mercy, that is a very clear delineation, I feel like, um, between those two Jesuses, because one wanted justice, you know, one wanted retribution for all that was taken, and then the other one had been preaching mercy to everybody. And then I didn't realize... Yeah, like the history. Well, the history that they ended up, you know, they sacrificed Jesus, but followed Barabbas. And that's what um, was their ultimate downfall of the Jews. Correct? Yeah. And there's there's a a great theologian, Michael Harden, who points out in Jesus's first sermon, when he is in his hometown, he preaches his first sermon. It's the famous passage about I've come to set the captives free and all this. Right. Mm -hmm. And. And then, you know, he stops and then it says the, the tr- some of the translations get it kind of like wrong. They don't know. They don't know what they're actually translated. They, they get it wrong. But if you read it, it looks like all of a sudden the crowd gets mad at Jesus, you know, and they're like, who is this Joseph's son? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? You know, and they're mm-hmm. kind of mad and they're 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 really ticked at him. Even and the his reason, own siblings are mad at him. Yeah, and, 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 and the reason why is because he he left off the favorite part of the prophecy that he was quoting in that sermon, which was at the end when it says that uh, Israel's enemies would be, you know, vanquished by God. Right? So it's like you're 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 citing your favorite, you know, quote of what's coming because these guys are living under the bondage of Roman oppression. And they're hearing him deliver this sermon that's quoting this prophecy about how God's going to set the captives free and all this stuff. But at the end of the original prophecy is a judgment, a condemnation, and a, and a signal that that God is going to smite Israel's enemies. And Jesus leaves that off because wow. it's not that he's saying those guys haven't done anything bad, but he wants them to look in the mirror and realize that the kind of judgment and destruction that they want to be given to their oppressors is actually something that they deserve as well because they reflect the same behaviors in their hearts of those bullies around them that subjugate them. Wow. What a powerful story, right? That's yeah. why they want to kill him. So for the, for the very beginning of Jesus' first sermon to his very last sermon, it is finished. It's all about do you desire mercy, which is another way of talking about nonviolence. Nonviolence means non-aggression and non-vengeance. That means you don't initiate physical force and you don't try to steal people's stuff. You don't try to uh, defraud them. You don't try to assault. You don't try to threaten people to hurt them if they don't do what you want them to do. It's very simple. And then non-vengeance means, you know, if someone harms you, you know, someone pushes you, you don't get on, beat them up. I mean, that's vengeance, right? Vengeance is different from, you know, self-defense. Self-defense is where, you know, someone's breaking into your house and you 
have the means to protect your family, they're vic- you know, they're, they're going to be victimized if you do nothing. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, it's not violent, in my opinion, to defend those who are vulnerable you're from having, physical attack. Yeah, you're having aggression taken on yeah, you. But so. if you sit, yeah, if you try to sit like Buddha as people are trying to destroy your family and children, that's not that's not cool. That's not Christian. That's not anything. That's disgusting. I mean, you're just sitting there and doing, uh, you know, yoga poses as someone <laughs> just kills your whole family. What a disgusting joke! So obviously, Christianity has room for self-defense. Well, we're Obviously. told to take care of our own household. I mean, right. yeah. Right, because you're not, you're not being anybody's hero if you allow weak and vulnerable people to be harmed. You know, if you, if you have the means, if some guy is beating up some old lady and trying to take her purse and you have the physical means to stop them uh, and you don't, that doesn't make you nonviolent. It makes you violent because you're complicit in something that you could have stopped when it was presented in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so... So make it very clear, we have to, that there's no, there is a place for self-defense within the Christian life, but there's no place for vengeance. Vengeance is kind of like you've subdued the attacker, and now you're just kicking him in the head to, to make him have suffering. You know, mm-hmm. That's the vengeance part, right? It's where you go too far. That's the mimetic reciprocity that, I, that Gerard's always talking about, which is you escalate the, you know, they, their desire is to inflict pain for their own selfish aims. And then if self-defense is not mimicking that, you know what I mean? You're not mm-hmm. mimicking that, You're just physically stopping it. But let's say the guy's in handcuffs and now you're hurting him and you're kicking him or you're tasing him like we see with some of these police situations where, they, where they're where they very cruel to people who they've already, they've already got handcuffs and they're, you know, this one guy I just saw, you know, I think it was in Texas where he, he was schizophrenic and he called the police for help. And they handcuffed him and put him on the ground and kept shoving his face on the ground and he died. They were laughing at him, you know, yeah. saying, oh, mommy's going to come pick, wake you up to go to school. And the, the dude was dying. And they're just sick psychopaths, you know. Yeah. And, and that kind of stuff like that, that's sacrifice, right? That's, that has nothing to do with Christianity. I don't care if those people go to church. They're not Christian. That's called paganism. That's called ancient Roman antichrist behavior to laugh at someone who's knocked out and not even care. He called them for help, but he's schizophrenic and they don't know how to deal with that. They're the opposite of Christ because Christ dealt with people who had mental illness. These guys are fools. These are, these are the same folks. And it's not, we don't want to scapegoat them because we all have those proclivities too, but that's the kind of representative of everything that is opposite of Christ, which is police officers handcuffing a mentally ill man, and allowing him to die. I don't know the names. I don't remember the man's name. People can look it up. Uh, the schizophrenic man that was killed for no reason. I'll have to. They're shoving their weight on his body. He couldn't breathe. What yeah. a sick thing. That's sacrifice, right? That's the way of Caiaphas. Well, and I, I think most people don't understand like where they're complicit in that. They're like, well, I'm a good person. I don't aggress against anyone. But we are in a, like if you look at our, our society right now, we are in a crisis, which I think you clarify on your website in with the crisis, the solution, and then our ideas behind prison, who should go there with those principles. Um, so do you want to begin just quickly talking about the crisis and then how you move into those principles of helping us find that solution? Uh, I don't even know where to begin. The crisis is uh, something that... It's huge. <laughs> we we all know something's wrong in our society, but we can't pinpoint what it is, right? Like, that's right. how I feel anyway. 
again, you know, people don't want to imitate Jesus. They don't want to take Christianity seriously, even those who say they're Christian. And therefore, because they try to abandon Christianity, I'll try to explain it this way. There's a lot of passages that Jesus talks about in a lot of things he says. He's predicting what will happen to societies when they have long been infected by the story of the gospel, of what happens to him, and how God vindicates him as the innocent victim of his community and as the vindication of God's nonviolent love against mankind's ugly, sacrificial peace. See, Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword, right? And that sword disrupts the way that the world makes peace. When Jesus prays to his father, he says, you know, I I pray that we were one, not as the world is one, but as you and I are one, right? Mm -hmm. See what I mean? So he's praying for unity and peace, but not the way the world does peace and unity. It's very important because the way the world does peace and unity is what uh, we call sacrifice. It's what the Bible talks about, which is that, you know, we can select targets of the community's wrath and we'll have a process by which we sacrifice them either in the ancient world, killing them or in other ways, just brutalizing them and making them become slaves or or doing something to subjugate them and to shame them and to hurt them as punching bags for the community. And so, so that was the way that ancient communities kept their peace and their unity. And Jesus says, God, I want the world to have unity like you and I have unity, not the way the world currently has unity. And so he says the sword that he's bringing is going to cut through the fake peace and unity of the ancient way of doing things. And when it cuts it through, you won't be able to go back to that way. That's what he says, behold, I see Satan fall like lightning. Because the age of Satan not, you know, so 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 think of it like this. Satan is not just like a boogeyman with red horns. In the, in the New Testament, it's just, Satan is like a title. It's like the accuser. That's why Jesus calls Peter the accuser. He calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, when he tempts him into using, uh, Peter wants him to be like Bernie Sanders or, or, you know, Ron Paul or Donald Trump or something. He wants him to be a political candidate who will use force to, well, Ron Paul wouldn't do this, but, but, you know, typically a, a political a candidate will say, I'm going to have the force of government, of government to correct injustices. Right. Yeah. And so when Peter's like, Hey, don't tell me you're going to die. Let that not be true. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That means accuser, get behind me, accuser. Cause you don't know the things of God, you know, the things of man, and that's going to lead you. You're going to create a stumbling block for me. He says, so what, what I'm trying to say is when Jesus says, behold, I see Satan fall like lightning, what he's talking about is the age that accusing scapegoats and accusing misfits, in, accusing people who have arbitrary differences from the in crowd and then harming them and, or shaming them or brutalizing them or subjugating them, that that was the way of the Satan. That was the way of the accuser. Yeah. And he says, behold, I see it falling like lightning, meaning 
if it's in the sky, it's in the realm of rulership. It's in the realm of ruling the world. But that way is going to fall like lightning, super fast, boom, to the earth where it's now not effective, where it's now not in control. So that's what he's talking about when he talks about, behold, I see Satan fall like lightning. It's the notion that the old way of doing our peace and unity is not going to work. So why do we have the crisis we have today? Why is it that it seems like uh, the West is falling apart in its ability to get along and to agree about the way politics should be in an agreeable way? We can't seem to have any peace. Everybody's fighting over identities, race, gender, sexual choices, whatever. All these things are causing more and more hysterical anger. What's happening? You know, the flag doesn't even unite us anymore. It used to be the thing. Everybody stood with goosebumps. Everybody, you know, at least we're all Americans. And now that doesn't even seem to get us to bind together as well. Something's not right. Something's falling apart. What's falling apart is exactly what Jesus predicted. He said, I've come to bring a sword. What does a sword do? It cuts down all the things that bind us together when they're built on lies and violence. Right? It's like the ancient world, the satanic world, and that just... The word Satan just, again, it's Jesus' way of describing the way the kingdoms of the world function prior to his inauguration of his alternative kingdom, which is now in control of world history. And so what he's talking about there is is just this na- this notion that his sword will cut through the kingdom of Satan and a house divided against itself will not stand. So Satan found the satanic kingdom is based on Satan casting out Satan. And isn't that exactly what we see in all the failed political attempts today? You know, it's always about, you know, we we find some kind of scandalous thing, like the rich are too rich. So then we say, well, that's a Satan. That's a bad guy. They're they're trying to destroy us. So we need to use the power of violence called government for Satan to cast out Satan. Or... You know, we need to go in Iraq and and unleash ISIS and destroy their entire community because we have to take out the Satan of Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. So there's a Satan, Saddam Hussein, and Satan's going to cast out Satan. And Satan being the use of violent coercion to subjugate people and unleash terrorism in the process. So Satan casts out Satan, but it doesn't work, right? It doesn't. Well, and I was thinking about that last time of how, you know, we were talking that mimetic theory of how, you know, one person goes and he kills the dog. And so then that person comes back and they kill the family and the family, you know, and then the brothers come and kill the whole village. and, And it goes this back and forth. And that's what we're seeing a lot in our wars anymore is like, yeah, we're there saying that we're trying to cast out you know, all of the the terrorists, but we're just creating more terrorists because then their family comes back in vengeance, <laughs> you know. And- right. Well, exactly. And see, that's the thing is that the crisis is that we're caught in, these, in this in-between stage. We can't go back to the ancient world of creating peace. It kind of worked back then. By kind of work, I mean, it kind of kept people together. It doesn't mean it was right. But it's what humans decided to do in the, in the lieu of, of choosing God's mercy instead of they wanted sacrifice. So they, they created this whole order all over the world, every community. They created this whole order of sacrificial religion, which is the same thing as government for them and the same thing as culture. And everywhere you went, 
that's how they created their order, their hierarchies were all mediated by this logic of might makes right, of being able to purge those for the glory of the many and the glory of the gods who were just just little mental projections of what the crowd actually was. You know, the crowd is what are called the gods. So when they say we have to give this sacrifice because the gods will get angry if we don't sacrifice this virginal girl to the Aztec god or something, what they're really saying is the gods are the crowd's insane groupthink rage Mm -hmm. unleashed. So if we don't find a way to conduit our anger into a selected, safe uh, recreation of the scapegoat phenomenon, then we're going to have unleashed violence that will go out of control with people killing everybody and going nuts, and we're not going to be able to get along. So that old order, the satanic order, the sacrificial order, whatever you want to call it, that order kind of worked. Jesus broke it completely because it was time to grow us up. Because as Paul talks about that in his letters, you know, sacrifice is baby food, and now it's time to grow up and be adults and have meat. And the meat is what Jesus is bringing, which is how to get along without sacrificially, you know, aggressing against each other and using might makes right to dominate over people who we can dominate over when we get away with it. So now we're in this situation. Well, I I think I I recently heard you talk about this where uh, you were saying, you know, we're doing the same back and forth thing, putting forth people as, you know, these are the misfits, these are the contrarians, these are the ones that aren't, you know, complying or whatever. But then, but we don't have a way to satisfy, you know, we don't have a way to stop it, basically, because we've moved past. I mean, the, the Bible, regardless of if we're religious or we use it or whatever, it's it's taken the scales off our eyes to not do that sacrifice the scapegoat sacrifice anymore and so there's no way to quench it is that right like in that is that where the crisis is it's like it's just this thing that keeps building and building and and we can't yeah so the crisis is that if all right so once jesus unveils the ugliness of the sacred violence that we do once he unveils how ugly it is to you know scapegoat people now we're sensitive to violence ever than ever before in history. And now we're super riddled with guilt about the ways in which that we're complicit with violence. But we always want to still hide and act like, well, no, the violence that I'm okay with is violence in the name of victims. It's in the names of, of vengeance against the victims of the old order, whether that old order be 1950s America and the racism there or 1970s America and the in the sexism there in the workplace, whatever it is, right? There's always like, it's always like your ancestors that we're trying to vent. We're trying to use vengeance to correct what they did. It's never like, you know, we, we don't want to wake up to the fact that we're all complicit in scapegoating and that we all must renounce the violence that Jesus says we have to renounce. Well, so our group is so, always right. Right. So we don't. Ever- yeah. <laughs> so we're stuck in this situation where we're half awake. We're half Christian. We're aware of what's happening. The ancient world was not morally as consciously aware of what they did as we are to what we're doing. But we don't want to go the full step and just obey Jesus and say, 
when Jesus says, don't resist evil with violence, we're like, oh, no, he doesn't mean that for anything related to anything I do. He doesn't mean that when I go vote. He doesn't mean that when I'm on a jury duty and I put somebody in prison for years for some nonviolent, stupid thing that I would never, ever for a minute want my own child to go through prison for. So stupid, so hypocritical. We don't want to actually even apply Jesus's command, don't resist evil with violence. We don't want to even begin to apply that to anything where it matters. And that's why, because we are aware, our hearts are pricked and haunted by the cross, but we don't want to obey what we have to obey to stop that process of guilt, right? We don't want to say, okay, wait a second. I just got to stop doing it. I just got to stop using violence. I got to stop calling for violence in political context. I got to stop desiring my neighbor's things because those are the things that build into these patterns that eventually spill out into collective violence. I got to just stop it. Just say no, but we don't want to do it. Even though we go to church or whatever we do, we don't want to do it. And therefore we're in the crisis we're in because the, the sacred violence, the, the satanic, sacrificial, old order of the ancient world, that was like the training wheels. And now they're off. And now we're trying to ride this bike. But we don't want to follow the instructions about how to ride the bike. And that's why we're going to fall on our tail over and over again in a really ugly situation. Uh, because now we don't have the training wheels to give, prop us up. Now we have to sink or swim, if you want to use that metaphor. Now you have to really... Uh, you know, if this is bowling game, sacrificial violence, the satanic order of might makes right. And um, what Caiaphas, the guy who called for the execution of Jesus, said, the high priest, he said, it's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. That was like bumpers for bowling. You know, you can bowl with the bumpers. You don't have to worry about hitting, you know, you know, going into the gutter. But now the bumpers of our game are off. Now the training wheels are off. Now we have to actually figure out how to get along with each other in a nonviolent, creative way uh, rather than a zero-sum, coercion-based way. So now it's all political. It's completely political what Jesus asked us to figure out, and we're not even beginning to scratch the surface. But it's going to happen. We're going to continue to become more and more infected with Christianity uh, and the way it, it, it informs our political and emotional and cultural sensibilities. Yeah. It has nothing. You know, people are like, oh, no, no one believes. I have people tell me like, oh, David, you know, Christianity is so like going away. Why would you want to talk about Jesus in a talk radio and all this public forums that you do? Don't you want to pick something that's a little bit more relevant? And I'm like, they have no clue. They have no <laughs> clue how relevant it is. I'm just the only guy, you know, showing up into the public sphere and making Connect, sense. Connecting the dots, yeah. basically, for Everybody us. Else. So it's like, why would I not do this? This is a total wide open. This is <laughs> the biggest story of the whole freaking, and it's not going to go away. Yeah. Because everything is about this question of mercy or sacrifice. It's like a hot potato game where we're always, you know, we get the hot potato and we're like, oh, wait, am I guilty of sacrifice? And we throw it to the other group, right, as soon as we can. Like, no, no, you are. You got it. You know, and that's what we're doing is we throw it to somebody else and say, oh, it's you guys, you white people or you toxic masculine people or you feminists. People or, using drugs or. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. And that's and that's what's going on. But it's a it's there's a concept that I haven't put it on the website because I've just been coining the term in my head. 
And I think it's important to help make sense for this for people. And I call it the impotent sacrifice. And the idea behind it is that the level of violence that we would need to employ to return to that ancient sacrificial way of keeping our communities together is a level of brutality that we will never be able to do. We just have the stomach. So, for example, uh, you know, I hear like young conservatives or someone told me recently, they're like, oh, we're going to get tough on crime. We don't like your ideas. They call it a libertarian. I'm not libertarian. But they call me that and say, oh, you're a libertarian. You don't want to put people in prison for drugs. You're you're soft on that. I said, wait a second. You're soft on crime, okay? Because you're telling me that your little proposal that we're going to lock up drug dealers even more, we're going to go lock them up Mm -hmm. more. Like, okay, what's that going to do? You're going to put them in there, and they're going to get AC. They're going to get a heater when it's cold. They're going to get meals. They're going to get a library. They're going to be able to buy M&Ms. They're even going to be able to get a degree. They can get a law degree while they're in prison. They're going to be able to have a public defender paid for by everybody else's money by force so that they have representation for fact-finding in the court if they so try. Even if it's not very good, they at least get that, you know? Even You know what I'm saying? And so they get publicly funded representation. They get to get a law degree. They get a pillow maybe. You know, they, they get, you know, water. They get a little bit of exercise. You know, I mean, they get all these things. They get to call people and say, this is not tough. It, you know, in my opinion, it's immoral. You know, I think there's psychological trauma. And obviously there's, it's a dehumanizing situation, which creates, you know, the conditions for very barbaric law of the jungle type behavior in there. And, and people can get very brutally hurt in violent situations. And they didn't do anything violent to deserve being there for one minute. So obviously on a Christian standpoint, it's obviously ugly and barbaric and brutal to put people in prison for nonviolent stuff yeah. or victim choices. But it's not brutal in the level that would need to be necessary to deter people from doing the thing they're trying to stop. So if you want to get really tough on crime, the way the ancient world, because what they're doing is they're trying to go back to the ancient world. You see, they're worried, these conservatives, tough on crime people, they're like, oh, we got to get tough on crime because people are doing drugs. we got to be harder. we got to go more like Caiaphas, less Jesus, more Caiaphas, more sacrifice, more, you know, Barabbas, less the other Jesus. Let's get violence. Let's get angry. Let's get tough. What tools are you have available? Now, if you were to take people in the public square and crucify drug dealers, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, literally crucify them. Set up crosses in the public town square where your Mr. Tough-on-Crime conservative tail wants to clean up drugs. Let's go see you guys, you tough guys, do it. Go do it the real way. Convince your local community, city, state, whatever, to bring back crucifixion for drug dealers and put people and crucify them on the cross. Now, if you did that, you might be able to deter a few people who'd say, you know what, good gracious, if they're crucifying people as a public policy of the government for selling marijuana, I'm not going to sell marijuana. So you might get a few people to be deterred from that because the the cost of, of being caught is so obscene and so brutal that it might deter people because that's the way the Romans did things. Yeah. That's, that's the way the satanic people 
that these so fake conservatives want to imitate. That's the way the satanic pagan world did things. They would brutalize people in the public square and whip them 70 times and turn them into a ground beef. And it's disgusting. But, yeah. I mean, we have to say it for what it is because these people are fake. You know, they're talking about, oh, we're tough on crime. You're not tough on crime. You're, you're chickens. Yeah. You don't have to go through what you think you think is necessary to deter crime. You're not going to do it. So stop trying to act. They try to puff their chests out and make themselves seem like, oh, we're the tough guys, libertarian, all these people. Those are the whip. No, we're not. We're just smart people who understand how it's not smart. It's not even smart. It's just moral, right? Yeah. Don't have to get smart about it. It's just common sense morality. You do unto others as you would have done unto them. Oh, big genius move that is. How hard is that to comprehend? These guys in the conservative movement, you know, I just see this new percolation that you see online with these so-called nationalist conservatives that they're trying to roll back the little bits of liberty that, uh, you know, the conservative movement had, and they think they're somehow doing something yeah. good. It's just a joke. Well, and, you know? and being on a conservative talk radio, you probably see a lot of that. But I love our last conversation, how we talked about how they can't do that. We can't have people out in the public square and and see the violence anymore, because even if we don't believe in the Bible anymore, it has taken the scales off our eyes to see violence for what it really is. And that's why they probably can't do it. And and why all of our we vote to have people do things for us that we would never do ourselves. Um, we also we put people away. We like to lock them in cages because then we don't have to see it. We don't have to see the violence that they go through, but we feel better, you know, but it's still a form of it. And I think that's where we all are. I mean, even very liberal people, they want to see justice, you know, social justice. Yeah, they is want a to huge... lock up Bill Barr. They yeah, they, they want, want to, to do it the other way for people. But when you say, OK, would you do that? Go to each one of your neighbor's houses and say, OK, hand me over your money so I can give it to this poor guy. It's easier for them to do at the voting block than it is to physically think about doing that. They can't do that. They would know? do it. Like, remember the um, Stanford prison experiment? Are you, are you familiar with that? No, where they no. created a condition for they, they did an experiment where they had some of the kids be um, prisoners and some of the kids were guards. They just created a like, you know, a, a kind of recreation of a jail like experiment on the campus. And the kids that were selected to be guards, they became very, very brutal very, very quickly. Wow. And doing really insane, torturous psychological stuff. These were ordinary uh, upper-income kids before. And they, they it, within a, like a week or a few days, they had turned into monsters. Wow. Because they uniform of a, of a jail guard. And, and the other, these other kids who were strong and confident people they started performing the role of a prisoner so much that they became they they were stripped of their dignity by their own self. Wow! Like they they internalized the victim passivity of submission so much so that they lost their sense of self for a while too. So that's what you know people these little tough keyboard warriors. Of course, if they were allowed to have a Stanford prison experiment where someone in authority told them, okay you can torture conservatives or you can do these things and you can push them and you can strip search them and all these things. They would do it if they have the, the collective context to protect them, you know, and to yeah. tell them it's okay. Well, but yeah, and, you're yeah. right. We, we, know, we know it's possible. We know. Psychopaths that would do it on their own, but yeah, very yeah. few people would do 
Americans on their own. Well, and we know yeah. it's possible because the Nazi movement showed us that. You know, they I mean, it was just a hatred between one religion and 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 you could you could do that for any situation. And we've done it to poor people yep. or to people on drugs or even the rich now is I'm getting the, I mean, we we murderers in the world but that but see the communists the reason why we're not allowed to talk about communists at the same level of ugliness as nazis is because the communists did it their ideology ostensibly they they did it in the name of of victims right they said oh we're gonna here to we're here to liberate the oppressed so guess what they had a more christian imitating story which is why because we're so christian infected we don't see them as as evil as Nazis. See, the Nazis were doing more of the ancient uh, pagan way of sacrifice. Well, and which it was is, out in the open in a way, right. too. Well, but, but the Nazis, they were like, the winners are the winners, and the in crowd is the in crowd, and the people who are the losers and the outsiders are the losers. Mm-hmm. And that's just going to be. But the communists were saying, no, we have to kill these people. It was the common man put- rising up against... Oh. So yeah. that's that's Christian. That's called Christian imitation. It's it's a false imitation, right? But they're imitating the energy of the Christian kingdom by by they're they're parasitically aping it and yeah. they're mimicking it and saying and that's why to this day the mainstream media and everybody they treat the violence of Antifa and those communist uh, thugs and the it's communist regimes around the world as yeah, that's bad, but you know, it's, it's, it's they say yeah. Nazis are the demonic of all demonic. The only reason why they see those things in different lights is because they're so thoroughly haunted by the cross, they have no chance of escaping. As Jesus told Paul, it's hard for them to kick against the pricks. So they can't escape mm-hmm. the power of the cross. The cross is totally infecting them and it's gonna continue Even to create they may not know it. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's going to continue funny. to create a nightmare crisis for yeah. all people's conscience. The left is more, uh, I think, as a group, they're more sensitive to the victimization that the cross reveals, yeah. and the right, the right tends to be more in line with the old sacrificial uh, pagan way of doing things. Yeah. And that's why the right is always like, oh, whenever the military says go to fight a war, they're like, yeah, go fight a war. Their military can't know wrong. Yeah. And then, you know, police, oh, the, whatever the police say, you just do. You know, if they yeah. say you in a, in, a, in a train car and send you off to Auschwitz, do go ahead and do it. They're good at patriotism. <laughs> How stupid. But, that, but that's the kind of mm-hmm. pagan idolatry that infects the conservative Christian world. But look, we're changing. It's, it, it's not all bad. I think, yeah. I think there is a, that's why I'm having these conversations. I think there is a, a burgeoning awareness of what it means to be truly Christian. But <laughs> that impotence of sacrifice is so important. I want people to understand that because people will sometimes say, well, oh my goodness, you know, it just sounds pie in the sky. Yeah, you're, you're just saying. making this up. But, but, but what I'm trying to show you is concretely, you can't go, you can't get the effectiveness of the way of violence that you think you can, right? Mm-hmm. So let's just ask this question for you. What would happen if your town, wherever you live, if the local sheriff and everybody in the government just said, we're going to crucify people selling marijuana or whatever, what would happen if they did that in the public square and they televised it live? Oh, everybody- yeah, I mean, it would be over within a day where people are like, okay, this is a bad idea. <laughs> you know, it would be so. It would be losing their minds. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It'd be worse than what you see, whatever they say about, you know, Trump, Hitler and all that. It'd be a thousand times stronger back. Yeah, 
and, definitely. And, and imagine now, here's another thing. In order to, so these little geniuses that want to have violence for everything, you know, the conservatives and the leftists. So in order for it to work, you have to have two things. One, you have to have a level of brutal sacrifice that actually deters people from doing that which you're trying to stop them from doing with the law. And then the number two thing you have to have is you have to have a media monopoly, right? Because you have to be able to make sure that you tell the narrative in such a way that there's only one perspective and it reinforces the groupthink of the reigning uh, society's rulers, right? Yeah. So, so that so that means like in the ancient world, when you would sacrifice somebody, right? Uh, okay, it, the, the, there was not multiple newspapers. There, there was one priestly cast, and they wrote the myth. That's what we call fake news, is mythology. So they wrote the myth that would justify what they did. So they would say, okay, you know, on this day, this person was a monster, and they were trying to create a famine, or they were trying to poison the children. And so we, the, the glorious uh, God-appointed Emperor Caesar executed these these nasty monsters and these barbarians, and everybody rejoiced, and all the children danced and and, and sang because they were now spared from the monster who the Caesar uh, sacrificed. That's the way mythology would look, or or a mythological style historical account, right? Mm-hmm. It was one it was one media. It wasn't. CNN or ABC and a blog down the road and a local channel here and a radio station here. There wasn't all that. It was one voice and it was aligned with the state completely. And the state was aligned with the storytelling and everything. Today, you know, we can't do that, right? Because imagine if for some magical moment we could pretend that society would just be okay with crucifying drug dealers or publicly whipping them or something awful, even hanging people. I mean, that's such a ghastly thing. They'd never allow it. But if they hanged people again, or if they did all these terrible things, imagine, you know, what would happen if you had free media like we have with technology. Somebody would be live streaming the killing and they would be a friend of that person. They'd say, oh my goodness, Bill did not deserve this. This guy has kids. Oh, my goodness. I'm live streaming this, guys. I'm in the park where they're doing this torture to Bill because he sold cocaine. Oh, my goodness, guys. He's got two kids at home that want dad back. You know, this is a terrible thing. This guy's a good man. He he used to donate time at the soup kitchen every Christmas. He just got into a bad thing. He just wanted to make some money. He was down on his luck financially. That's why he sold cocaine. That's called the gospel technology. That's what the that's what the Bible does with Jesus' story, right? Because the official myth makers of Jesus' time, they were saying what Caiaphas said, which is it's better that this enemy of God dies than our whole nation perish if we allow this guy to do what he wants to do. And so the gospels take the camera away from that and say, well, here's our perspective. Jesus is innocent, and Jesus is so innocent but yet even his followers betrayed him. And, and even them got succumbed to the power of the mimetic groupthink of the crowd. Even they fell into the power of, of being possessed by a hive mind and, 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 and betrayed him like Peter did. 
So it tells the vantage point of the truth. It tells the side of the victim. And that story has infected us for 2,000 years that we're now in the situation we are where we have different media vantage points about what's happening to someone who's being persecuted. So now there are many media outlets and different communities who believe that Trump being impeached is that he's an innocent victim. And then there are other media that say, no, he's a monster. He, he deserves to be destroyed. It's better that Trump is humiliated and fired and impeached and locked up if possible than the whole nation perish if he looks into the criminal activities of Joe Biden and his son. You see what I mean? Yeah. So, so there's, so you see how that you can't get any consensus media story because of Christianity having such a powerful infection that we're replaying the same thing that the gospels did to their own community, which is to give the other side perspective of the person being persecuted. And when you do that, it breaks the ability of groupthink to create unanimous consensus. So what I'm trying to say is that's what I call the impotent sacrifice. It's the idea that we're trying to use government violence to solve our problems and create law, order, and peace. But the level of brutality that we will stomach is nowhere near the level required to make these acts of government law actually deter the things they're trying to deter at any significant level. And number two, it does not have the media monopoly accompanying these acts to make us all see it from one perspective. We'll see it from all those different perspectives, and it won't create the unity and the order and the consensus that it's okay what we're doing. What I'm saying is that Jesus has burned the bridge for us to ever go back to the might makes right law and order way of doing things of the ancient world. We can't go back as a culture. So the only way we can go is the way of Jesus. We have to go the way of nonviolence and non-aggression. And that's the way we'll figure these things out. Exactly. And that's what I, um, I think we've covered like the crisis and why we're all feeling like something's wrong, but don't quite know why. And I think you've totally explained that, that, that natural man of us has been, you know, we've seen the light basically. Um, so I'd like to move into the loving justice, like those principles, what you, what do you feel like the solution would be in some of those writings that you've, you've written about? Uh, I think there's, is there five principles like turn the other cheek, drop the first stone, those things. Yeah, and they're all basically, yeah, they're all basically the same principle, just using different stories of Jesus' life, different actions he does. He's a performance artist, so he doesn't, he's not like Confucius where he just says an idiom. He, he, he likes to perform the truth that he wants you to understand, right? Because he's a great teacher, so he knows how to, he knows that performing an action is going to performatively convey the truth deeper in your subconscious than just to tell you, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, right? Exactly. So, so like all those principles that I have on a neighborschoice.com in the principles section are all about just illustrating different stories in his life uh, that reflect the way that we can, you know, engage our own law today. So you have the turn the other cheek principle which, again, is under the heading of his statement right right in that same passage of don't resist evil with violence. So turn the other cheek is the notion that 
it's dealing with, not with self-defense from mortal danger, but rather, um, you know, if someone in the ancient world would slap you, uh, they would slap you in a way that would be like to put you in your place, that you're beneath them, that you're lower than them, you're a slave or you're a serf or you're something that's beneath them. And so he was saying, you know, turn the other cheek is to, you're not cowering in the corner uh, like a, a passive uh, victim. You're standing your ground and you're offering up your other cheek as if the first one didn't really do anything to you. It didn't harm you. It didn't make you the victim that it wanted to make you. You know, it didn't make you the lesser that it wanted to make you. Yeah. And the way it makes you a lesser is when you react, when you perform the role of a, of a hurt and afflicted victim when you stand your ground and you offer your other side of the cheek now he's got to slap you as an equal the way they would slap at that point would be with the open palm instead of the backhand now you're an equal so jesus is basically saying you can this is because these people were occupied by a very brutal uh, power and they didn't have a lot of recourse so this is his way of saying you know you this is how you resist you resist their ability to dominate your psychology and turn you into the sacred victim they want you to be. You're going to resist it by not playing into it, by not mimetically responding either by punching them back or by cowering in the corner and making them revel in your weakness. You're not giving them either. You're giving them a third way. And so turn the other cheek applies to positions of power games where those who have power over you in a hierarchy are trying to make you know your place. And so that's how you, you know, you show that you're not going to know your place, but you're also doing it in a way that doesn't invite reciprocal violence back. Yeah. Because if you punch them, they're going to punch you and spear you and kill your whole family. Uh, and if you cower in the corner, then they're going to beat you up and kill your whole family. This is a way of neutralizing their mimetic desire to, uh, you know, create scandal for you. And so how do you turn the other cheek when it comes to politics? Well, it's even beneath that, right? Because, you know, to put a neighbor in a cage, you're not even, you know, you're, you're initiating the slap. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If someone's a drug or if someone's, you know, violated an economic regulation or some, they drove with a suspended license and they're struggling and things like that, and, and you look at that stuff and, and you're jury duty or you're on jury duty or you're a voter and you want to keep those laws on the books, what you're doing is you're, you're the opposite. You're the guy striking and, and shaming people and keeping them in their place. So you're yeah. not even, you're not even operating on the turn the other cheek principle of, you know, well, because uh, they, they didn't slap you. You know, if someone's doing marijuana or something, they didn't really slap you. So you don't even yeah. have the right, you know, what are you turning your cheek for? You, you're the one hitting them, you know. Well, and I so think it's so far removed from Christianity, you know, to be doing that. Yeah, and I think when we look at nonviolent law breakers <laughs> or whatever, is that we have to think about that, like what action, the action that they made, who did it really hurt? And you know, yeah, if there's little tiny kids involved that are not being taken care of because their parents are doing drugs or whatever, let's take care of the family, but then try to get the parents the help they need versus just throwing them in prison or something that's that's what i'm doing drugs in with it because we've surrendered again because we don't turn the other cheek and we surrender so much power to violence mm -hmm. 
Yeah. We have kids who are raised by government schools, which are fun. They're funded by violence. Yeah. They're funded by (laughs) sacrificial violence. So how are you going to get a loving, merciful outcome for an institution that's founded on sacred, sacred violence? Yeah. It's founded on a monopoly that says you pay us whether you use this service or not, whether you want to opt out and do your own kind of educational method, whether you want to learn, you know, our garbage ideology yeah. or not, you're paying us or else. Yeah. We'll take your house. We'll take whatever. We'll throw you out on the streets. That's sacred violence. That's scapegoating. It's yes. just so built in that no one gets to that point, that right? we don't understand everybody, it. Yeah. yeah. But everybody obeys, so they don't even get to the point of the final result of the scapegoat mechanism. It's like all they do is threaten you with the scapegoat mechanism, and we all mostly just all obey yeah. and comply and obey and shut up but it's all based on scapegoat violence so you know these people are doing drugs because we've surrendered our education of creating a worldview which is done through imitation by the way not through instilling ideas in a as if they're a computer input output right Mm -hmm. education for children and homeschooling is about imitation of the person for example my dad's a pastor and i can tell you that you know, growing up, I learned more just by shadowing my, my dad, going to the coffee shops, dealing with the flock of his community, dealing with the poor folks, giving them food, giving them turkeys and for Thanksgiving and Christmas, going to the places where people don't smell good or they're, they have mental issue or they, they, they're a woman who, uh, you know, killed their husband or whatever. This is humanity. You deal with life. And seeing him deal with people and just shadowing him from a young age, two, three, four, five. That's why I love Jesus. It's nothing he taught me in the idea world of it, right? You know, mm-hmm. the doctrines of we believe this, son, and we believe this denomination and that. He didn't really push that. But when he did say that, that none of that stuff is why I'm still following Jesus. I'm following Jesus because my dad modeled for, for me. And I, yeah. Yeah, I medically imitated that, right? Yeah. So that's why. It's not because, oh, that's a great idea that it's a trinity and it's this or it's that or this prophet's good, or this guru's great, or this theory's right, and all this. Oh, that's why I'm a Christian after thir- you know, after all these years. It's like, no, you know, I'm, I'm there because of something unconscious that I imitated. And so when we look at all these people doing drugs, you know, they're doing drugs as a symptom of, of, a, of, of a, a greater of, problem. Of a society that has abandoned its name, which is that we're supposed to be imitating, you know, 70% say they're Christian, that means they're imitating Jesus. Well, they're not imitating Jesus, so they're false advertisers, and people know it. And that's why people are angry and bitter, and that's why they're turning to drugs. And they well, turn and to drugs. We're disconnected oh. once again because um, you know the government has disconnected us with with our families and things like that because they take care of the elderly, so we don't really have to take care of that. They take our little kids and you know school them, and so. Yeah, we're a totally disconnected society as well. In the inner city, and you can't you can't start a job, you can't start mm-hmm. a hair license without spending thousands of dollars to start up a hair license. You know, you can't start a hair salon, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Without thousands of dollars in occupational licensing. Yeah. They will. I know a lady in Texas, Isis Brant Brantley, who uh, she does African hair braiding, and she didn't do the license for Texas's. Uh, hair license because they teach the white hair or whatever, you know, that, that kind of uh-huh. a totally method of doing hair. And so she said, everything I do in, 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 in hair braiding 
has nothing to do with anything they teach in these licensing classes that I'm supposed to take by force of law. Nothing. They use chemicals we don't use. They do methods we don't use. They do yeah, nothing. Hair is totally different. Yeah. Thousands of dollars to do methods of hairstyles and stuff that I'm not going to use. I'm doing an African ancestral braiding technique that's passed down to me. And guess what they did? They put guns in her face and put her in a cage because yeah, she was doing African hair braiding. Now, how do you expect anybody to not lose their mind in a society that, that that's a thing, you know? Yeah. We know that it's wrong. Even if you don't know it like I know it and you know it, but people feel it. That's the yeah, thing I want to yeah, get. exactly. People feel like there's a lot of twisted garbage going on and they feel really guilty, but they don't know where to sort it all out. And they're too arrogant to turn to the work of Jesus. And they're too prideful to turn to the humility of, of recognizing that their desires mm, are not yeah. their own. And so they're so lost and they're flailing around. And that's why they're like, oh, lock up the drug dealer. You're not going to lock up drug dealers. It's so weak. Yeah, they're it's so pathetic. They're taking problems of a larger symptom, basically. And, you know, we're trying to treat what the symptom of a larger problem with something that's not, it's not going to work. Now, so. now the conservatives were saying they want to ban pornography with the federal government. Did you hear about that? Oh, I did. So these guys are weak-willed. That, you know, they're so weak that they want to have a federal ban on pornography completely. That these conservatives think that, you know, these so-called conservatives, they believe that, you know, they can't handle. They have so weak willpower. They can't control. They can't discipline themselves. They can't use technology. They can't go find other hobbies. They got to go cry out to the government. Please save us. Satan, please cast out Satan. Where have we heard that before? Yeah. Right. The Satan is the pornographic industry. And it's got a lot of problems and a lot of ugliness in there. Yeah, exactly. It's a stronghold of ugliness. Okay. But they're saying, okay, Satan, come and save me from your Satan work. <laughs> How stupid <laughs> is that? What are you going to do? Create a totalitarian police state? I mean, what are you going to do? It's so dumb. You know, people don't understand that when you prohibit something, you make it obscenely profitable for the suppliers that stay in the game, yeah. which gives them every incentive to keep doing it. It doesn't matter, folks, whether it's heroin or chocolate. You could make a ban on chocolate and it would be a violent violent thing we'd be talking in a few years about violent chocolate cartels in mexico beheading people for dark chocolate bars yeah that's what we're talking about and people are so foolish when they listen to these fake conservatives tell us oh no the cartels are violent because of the of the substance that they're selling somehow when you sell cocaine it just makes everybody violent you yeah, know I mean? yeah. oh, it's, it's so dumb it's yeah. like how we even we even have to even deal with this as a legitimate thing. But yet so many people believe that. They're just yeah. like, oh, yeah, we have to stop these violent drug dealers. Okay, we'll just keep making it extremely profitable for them to keep selling drugs. That's a great idea, you know. And then we'll be like Eric Holder with Obama and do Fast and Furious and, and run some of these cartels' guns and stuff. Wow, how tough can you be? They're wonderful. But, you know, that's what we're dealing with is a lot of a lot of flailing around a lot of begging for Satan to cast out Satan. Oh, the, so so what's the drug thing? Mm -hmm. The drug thing is the Satan is the drug dealer and the cartels and drug addiction. And yeah. then so we're going to call for the government to come sacrifice all these people and do no-knock raids and bust people open and accidentally shoot dogs and babies and stuff and just all this satanic carnage in the name of casting out the Satan 
of drug addiction and cartels. Rather than you follow Jesus, you say, do not resist evil with violence. We're going to legalize these drugs, every one of them, every last one of them, because we're not chickens, we're not cowards, we're, we're adults, and we know that Jesus is king and all these would-be little tyrants are not. Yeah. They're, they're, they're weak, and, they're, and their solutions are weak. So then we legalize drugs, and guess what happens? All of a sudden, the cartels collapse. Because if you can't sell these drugs, they don't have any profit margins. If people who need to get their heroin can go to a harm reduction clinic in a safe, nonprofit environment and have their heroin without worrying about you know having to go through the limited suppliers of the drug cartels, then the cartels don't have any money, which means the local gang that rules Chicago's streets doesn't have any money to get the guns yeah. that they use to predate on people. And they don't have any profit margins to sell their bag of cocaine or weed or whatever it is because they're not the monopoly of the supplier anymore. Now you can go to a company and those companies will have a liability to be responsible for the customer so that they're not going to sell you tainted drugs that have fentanyl mixed in that gets you the overdose on accident. They're going to make sure because if it's a legal business, they'll be sued out of business tomorrow the next day if they're offering yeah. someone heroin and it's tainted with some kind of thing that the the customer didn't want. Yeah. And then it's, and then you'll have safer drugs. Yeah, you'll have safer drugs, you'll have liability, you'll have accountability. And guess what will happen too? The kids won't want it as much because the and the, uh, adults and kids won't want it yeah, because we, the stove syndrome is gone. Now it's like <laughs> it's legal that's not even cool anymore. You yeah, know? we tend to want what we can't have, and anytime I mean, we end up creating uh, we end up creating in society that rebellious child attitude in all of us. You know that we, I mean, some of us like to just break the law <laughs> just because, you know, it's it's something and many, exciting and different. And how many people who are on these opioids, opioids or whatever, they got on there because they were taking hydrocodone and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oxycodone, which are government-sanctioned pushed drugs by the FDA, and I, I was listening to a former U.S. attorney who explained that one of the FDA, he mentioned the guys, I think by name, one of the guys that was in charge of approving oxycodone as safe and effective ended up working with that company right afterwards, with the oxycodone's company. Wow. And so I think it was um, Purdue or something like that, some pharmaceutical company. And so it's like, you know, I, I asked him a question. I said, if that was done in the private sector, what would happen to that guy? Wouldn't he be brought up for criminal collusion? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To be pretending to be a third party arbitrator of someone's safety, but then you're actually getting kickbacks or whatever from the company that job. you're supposed to be policing. Yeah. It'd be fraud. That, that would be considered fraud. Yeah, exactly. That's, that would, in my world, that would be punishable by a fine or something, a vicious something, because you, you just you know, colluded to deceive your customers because the FDA would be the third party arbitrator of what's safe and they're lying. They're deliberately deceiving people. So, you know, they're the ones that create lawlessness. You know, I don't ever accept these frames. They're not for law and order. They're for lawlessness. Yeah. The people that the FDA that run our world, the people that want the public schools to raise our kids. And now these fools, they want to have universal childcare. Ivanka Trump's trying to make it so that, you know, She's trying to make it so that we can get, I, I think, some kind of child care policy through where and then they're going to mandate that businesses have to have um, paid leave 
which is so dumb. You know, it's like these people, this is a joke of a conservative movement. Yeah. So we- if we could just legislate everything, you know, we could make it all go away. Why are we getting more violent with more legislation? But um, just what it's supposed to fix, is it? Yeah, exactly. So just for sake of time, though. So he has a great, you know, the loving justice to go on and see those principles. He's talked about several of them, you know, as we've been talking about taking up your cross, dropping the first stone. Get Behind Me Satan, we've mentioned several times of Satan uh, trying to bind Satan and then walk on water, dying by the sword. Those are some different concepts that you uh, deal with on your website. But just to end our podcast, do you maybe have just some final parting words for our listeners and then give us your contact information where our listeners can find more about some of these ideas that you've posted yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, the key is is just to Really, you know, take a look at the website at neighborschoice.com, read the principles. Those are derived from my own, you know, understanding of scripture with the influence of many great thinkers before me. But just my conscience being the biggest guide, which is what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do for us, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and then number two, I don't do a lot of Gerard stuff on the website. There's a little bit of it on some of the news items and stuff, but then dive into Gerard's work and see how the principles of, that I've shown of how Jesus's social ordering principles, turn the other cheek, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. Dropping the first stone is how you stop the process of violence. It's how you say no. When you drop the stone rather than cast the stone, you're saying, I'm not going along with this presidential campaign because even though there's some good things here or there, they're still promising to do a lot of violent things that I would be disgusting to carry out yeah. myself. Yeah. I would never chase somebody for being a sex worker. I would never beat somebody up by myself because they're doing a drug. I would never do that. So why would I hire somebody who's going to keep those things on the books? Yeah. That or, means I'm signing off on what they're doing. Or the know? Ponzi scheme of Social Security. That's that's a big one in and of itself. I mean, what generation is finally going to have the cojones to go, okay, this has been a Ponzi scheme from the beginning. You know, everything that you have paid into it has been paid out to your parents years ago. And then you're actually getting more than what you ever paid into it. Um, it's a huge Ponzi scheme. I mean, there's got to be a time. I'm just using that as an example. It doesn't matter how long the law has been in place. There's got to be a time when we go, okay, this is only, I'm only funding this on the backs of my children. You know, I'm not. This is a nothing. Yeah, that's stopping, stopping. Because when you're in that crowd and they're trying to, this is in reference to the adulterous woman story. When you're in that crowd and there's 60 people with stones, it's easy to just get lost in the crowd of the group. Yeah, and, and just, throw just your anonymously. And just go, I yeah, paid I'm, into the system. Yeah. I've done this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to keep taking my social security and keep voting for people that take social security, that, that, that keep social security on the books. And I'm not going to let people opt out. There needs to be an opt out time. Yeah, there needs to be exactly. a cut off time where people can opt out of, of, of social security and they can also opt out of Medicare because it's garbage medicine anyways, most of it. And you know, allow themselves to opt out and run their lives as they see fit as long as they're not using violence to sacred you know to sacrificially hurt other people it's very common it's not really rocket science to figure out and people are saying you know well it's not about the individual it's true it is about the family the family can only flourish if you are allowed to protect people from sacred violence from the idea of might that's the bottom line so the, the bottom line is is that we can continue on this lawless path 
that the left and right have us on and where we, and even the libertarians, because the libertarians, this the libertarian party, they don't want to acknowledge the founder of the liberty movement, who's Jesus, in a way, and that, that's a big problem for them. This whole political matrix that we're in, it's going to continue to become more lawless. It's going to continue to be uglier. That's the crisis. That's the we got to act now moment. So we're either going to stop scapegoating people, we're going to drop our scapegoat, let them go, or we're going to continue to spiral into the violence with the rest of us. That's it's awesome. all going to get worse. Awesome. So that's our choice. Drop the scapegoat or it's going to get worse. Great. Well, thank you so much, David. Again, we've been speaking with author David Gnorski. I love all of his stuff. He's got a weekly podcast called Things Hidden, and I've watched every one of those. It's amazing. He's also on uh, different episodes of AMFAM broadcast of A Neighbor's Choice. Uh, in Orlando, Florida. He's got a YouTube channel that he interviews all kinds of amazing people. And just taking a look at his website, neighborschoice.com is just an incredible place to start. But thank you so much for you know coming and talking to us about how we do have a choice to stop this. And I appreciate all you've done for us. And thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.